those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> Welcome to the Vegan Vanguard, a show about all things from the perspective of two revolutionary vegan women. I'm Maureen. And I'm Laura. Oh, we have a guest today. <laughs> so, this is a little plot twist. Um, today, Mexi is not here, and Laura is kindly joining me for a discussion about vegan washing of Israel, about uh, the, the situation with Israel and Palestine, and notably what we're going to be talking about is a um, vegan fest that happened in Israel called Vibe Vegan where they invited four very prominent bloggers from the vegan world to discover Israel as like a culinary plant-based heaven. Um, and so I thought that this would be a really great time to talk to Laura because she is a real encyclopedia when it comes to discussing everything um, in relationship to Israel and their occupation and Palestine and notably vegan washing. So. For any um, longtime subscribers of my channel, you might recognize Laura um, because we did an interview together called Israel and Palestine, an overview, vegan washing, BDS, and more. And now she's back. Now we're talking again today. So I'm super excited. Let me introduce Laura quickly. So Laura Schleifer is a pro-intersectional vegan activist, Palestinian solidarity activist, theater artist, and educator. Laura has been vegan for five years and a Palestinian solidarity activist for 10 years. Notably, Laura taught a course at Wesleyan Green Street Art Center on a 3,000 year history of Palestine, Israel, and the Middle East. She also spoke at UK VegFest Brighton um, with me. I mean, not with me, but we were both speakers yeah. <laughs> at the Pro-Intersectional Conference, which was really wonderful. Her talk was called The Animal Have the Answers. Laura, do you want to tell us a little bit about that talk? Yeah. Um, so basically, well, it was very interesting because at the Brighton Veg Fest that year, it was Christopher Sebastian McJetters who was organizing uh, what they called the Intersectional Summit. And um, so that had a theme. And the theme was on the crisis of capitalism and neoliberalism and the rise of white nationalism and fascism in its place. Um, and this question of what response, first of all, the animal liberation and vegan movement could have for that, that and what might be the right direction for the West to take um, in the aftermath of those systems collapsing. So actually, it was very interesting how I came up with the concept behind my talk for that, because I was uh, really just kind of interested in a lot of things relating to trying to find a better system. And I happened to be looking into anarchism and specifically anarcho-communism. The Western incarnation of that was founded by Peter Kropotkin. And uh, so I was watching a documentary on Peter Kropotkin. I knew nothing about him at that stage, really. And then right in the middle of the documentary, they started showing footage of ants. And it turned out that Kropotkin had come up with his theories of anarcho-communism from studying, among other things, animal societies. Basically, he studied 
all different types of animals, all different species, insects, birds, mammals, obviously, crabs, um, cetaceans, all, all different types of animals. And uh, basically, he found the same patterns in nature over and over and over again, that basically animals uh, had societies where there really wasn't any sort of um, positions of hierarchy, where they worked together collaboratively, and where everything was based on mutual aid, that basically they knew. And it was very interesting because he said, you know, Darwin talks about this in his writings as well, but they were misinterpreted that people thought that he was talking about the survival of the fittest as in one individual. Mm -hmm being the fittest or the smartest or the strongest or the fastest or whatever, that being the one that would survive. But actually what he found was that that's not how nature works at all. It's that the community that is the strongest is the one that survives. Mm -hmm. So the individuals work together, help each other and collaborate, and they are the ones who survive. So from that, he said, that's really the way that humanity is meant to be living. We're meant to be living in communal situations where we're not competing against each other, but we're working together and helping each other. And that is the way that humans are meant to live. And in fact, that is the way that humans did live uh, for most of their history and the way that indigenous communities have always lived. You know, those that have not been completely had their way of life destroyed by colonialism still live today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he wrote a book, a very interesting book called Mutual Aid, A Factor in Evolution that talks about this theory. And from that, I thought, my God, how perfect <laughs> that mm -hmm. coming to this conference uh, to talk about the animal liberation movements ideas for how to build a better society and here we have a theory about building a better society that is based on how animals live so that's actually how i came up with the talk and that was the theme yeah that's so so interesting um i've been thinking a lot about this idea of how competition is like the trope that governs our life and how we think that it's what has made us great as human societies and what has led us to be able to pursue progress when that indeed really isn't true. Yeah, absolutely not. It's the complete opposite, really. It's hindered progress in a lot of ways. And you also spoke at uh, the Collective Leak Free Conference in New York City at Hunter College. It was called Bloodied Bodies, Slaughtered Souls, and that talk focused on um, the conditions of slaughterhouse workers and the intersection between human oppression and animal oppression. Yeah. And actually, I do want to add a little something about that one, because, um, you know, as I was doing the research for that talk, I found out that uh, it was very, that issue was very, very heavily intertwined with the immigration issue, specifically Latin American immigrants, because actually 75% of U.S. slaughterhouse workers are undocumented immigrants. But it's interesting because if I were going to give that talk again, I could actually go even deeper into that because as it turns out, after the fact, I realized that in fact, a lot of the reason why Latin Americans and again, especially indigenous communities in Latin America are getting pushed off their land in the first place and being forced into emigrating is the fact that uh, multinational animal agriculture corporations are taking over their land for growing animal feed crops for export, for ranching, for raising animals and exporting their products. So there's like an unbelievable connection 
between those two issues and of course a lot of other issues as well. Yeah, that's that's very fascinating and I feel like I could talk to you about so many of these topics for like an entire podcast episode each, <laughs> which is what happens a lot of time when we talk on Skype. We end up talking for hours and hours about all these different connections. Yes. An aspect that I really like to pursue in my veganism is figuring out the endless connections that there are between animal oppression and literally everything else that goes on. And I feel like you do the same. So it's been really wonderful to share that thought process with you throughout the years. Yes. Um, so I did an interview with Laura on my channel. This is like maybe a year and a half ago now. I asked Laura how she first became involved in the Palestinian solidarity movement, especially as a Jewish American woman who wasn't particularly raised in a household where that was like a mainstream discussion. Right, Laura, would you say that that's correct? Yeah, I mean, my family was not heavily Zionist. I was lucky in the sense that I can get the heavy-duty brainwashing uh, where that's concerned. But, of course, we were Jewish. And so, obviously, you know, there's always a little bit of a feeling of, oh, well, you know, they're the Jewish nation and we're Jewish. And so there's always that sense of, oh, you know, there is some sort of connection there. But, yeah, I was not heavily subjected to propaganda where that was mm -hmm. concerned the way that a lot of Jewish people are. Mm -hmm. And you got more interested in the issue when you went to Israel on a on a trip that was just, oh no, it wasn't when you went to Israel, it was when you went to Palestine on a theater trip, correct? Right. So what happened was, um, actually, I became a lot more interested in finding out really what was going on there with the second intifada, which happened just after 9-11. So at that point, I was really making a concerted effort to try to find out what, what was going on there, but I had no guidance. I did not know where to begin looking. Um, everything I was finding out was just completely out of context. I was totally confused. I knew there was a lot of propaganda. I didn't know on which side it was on, but I knew that there was, you know, I, I just didn't know what to trust or who to believe. And I will say that I really was kind of always feeling, just even knowing like the barest minimum, I always felt in my heart like something rotten was going on there. And really, my supplies were always more with Palestine because it just was such a, you know, even if you only know the barest minimum of there used to be a country called Palestine and then it just became Israel. And then the Palestinians were really upset about that and they were mm -hmm. continuing to have like suicide bomb attacks. That's basically the extent that I knew before I started, you know, trying to delve more into it. I kept thinking to myself, they're upset for a reason. Their country was taken over. They're killing themselves because they feel like they have nothing to live for. So I always had this sense of, I don't really know what's going on over there. I don't understand it. But there was always this feeling of something is not quite right about what we're being told about this situation because it just doesn't seem kosher. Ha -ha. Um, so... <laughs> So I was, but I was very confused and lost. Um, I will say one other thing about the way that I thought about this issue before I went there. I remember as a child, even, that I would watch, you know, like the news and they'd be talking about like UN meetings and whatnot. And there would always be Yasser Arafat. And of course, I always heard Yasser Arafat's a terrorist. Yasser Arafat's a terrorist. And then I would look at that even as a child and I would think to myself, well, if Yasser Arafat is a terrorist, then what is he doing speaking at the UN? Yes. <laughs> like arresting him. <laughs> and imprisoning him. He's a terrorist. 
And so I always had that sense of something is just not quite legitimate about what we're being told. But I really didn't know anything beyond that until I went there. And yeah, the way I ended up going was kind of random. It was fate. Because what actually happened was that originally I was very involved in protesting the sanctions on Iraq that the U.S. was putting on Iraq prior to the 2003 invasion. And um, that was absolutely horrific. They basically intentionally stopped Iraq from being able to access food, medicine, clean water which is exactly what Israel is doing to Gaza now. But they did that during that period, and 1.6 million Iraqis died, including 600,000 Iraqi children. And there was an organization called Voices in the Wilderness that was making trips to Iraq to witness what was going on there and then come back and expose Americans in the U.S. to the situation there. And I was planning to go with them, and... Um, they also had kind of like an offshoot group that did uh, circus and theater performances in Iraq. And by the time I was ready to go, the Iraq war had already started. And the group that was doing the circus trip said, oh, you know, it's too dangerous for us to go to Iraq now, but we are going to Palestine. And so my reaction to that was kind of like, oh, Palestine. <laughs> because even though I was wanting to know more about what was going on there. Obviously, it was kind of awkward for me as a Jewish person and my Jewish family. And yeah, so I was kind of uh, like, I don't really, you know, I don't know how my family is going to react to that. How did they react to that? My mother is very apolitical where that's concerned. So she had no problem with it. But what I was concerned about was my father. Uh, because to be honest, even though my father never subjected me to any sort of heavy propaganda, he definitely swung a little more on the liberal Zionist side of things. Um, he's got like a picture in his office of an Israeli plane flying over like a concentration camp, <laughs> uh, you know, to, you know, in, in Europe to kind of symbolize, you know, the Jews are risen from the ashes of that. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely a little more uh, on the liberal Zionist side. So I was concerned to tell him that I was thinking of going to Palestine. Mm -hmm. His main concern was my safety. Um, it wasn't really the political situation. But yeah, I have had some conflict and, you know, with some of my extended family as well. Um, my aunts and uncles and stuff like that uh, are much more heavily Zionist. But um, he did accept it. And then obviously it was hugely, hugely eye-opening for me. Um, and that was in 2008. And I have been very, ever since then, I mean, that, you know, was like interesting because when I actually saw what was going on there, it was so overwhelming to me, just so completely different than everything that I had ever heard about the situation that I really had to start researching it after I experienced it firsthand to make sense of what I had seen and experienced and what was exactly going on there. And it was really only pretty recently, you know, only in the last couple of years that I felt like, okay, now I can actually really start talking about this and writing about this and, and feel like I know what I'm talking about because it, it 
it is, you know, there's a lot of layers of um, misinformation and propaganda, which of course is kind of the whole point of this interview is to talk about that. Right. Yeah, you're you're very, very vocal about it. And you're one of the people who has taught me the most about the situation in Israel and Palestine. I related to a lot of what you said. I mean, obviously, I didn't grow up in, you know, I'm not Jewish. And I just had kind of the mainstream. So I went to high school in France, and I had like the mainstream history course on the on the Middle East, you know, and we spent like a month covering the Israel-Palestine conflict, if that. Yeah. It was very much presented to me as something that had two sides, that it was like this, this like thousand, thousands and thousands of years yeah, right. religious conflict that you could never really have a clear idea about. Uh, right, one way or another. Totally um, yeah. And I must say that it took me a really long time to to sort of overcome that. You know, this idea that like you can't, you can never speak about it because you're always undereducated, and there's always so many different sides that will invalidate your argument. I would say to this day, I mean, so I took a course in college by one of Edward Said's like disciples. Um, a professor, I'm blanking on his name right now. Anyway, it was a really great course called um, The Modern Middle East, you know, where I learned a good deal about um, the situation and the history. I made a video on my YouTube channel about it with Zavi, who's also a pro-Palestine activist. I've watched Occupation 101 like two or three times. I've spoken to you extensively. I, I um, was on Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack doing a show about, doing an episode about pinkwashing and vegan washing, and I still, to this day, have this almost inexplicable fear to talk about, to talk about the conflict. I mean, the, you know, I don't even like to call it a conflict because it's an occupation and there's not, you know, conflicts makes it seem like there's two sides to it when, you know, there really is not two sides to this occupation. But I still am, am I still feel undereducated in talking about right. it, and I try to overcome that and yeah. not let that you know, shut me up about the issue altogether. But another reason is, you know, I've gotten so much flack and so much pushback every time I do talk about it. The video we did together has nearly 600 comments. And while a lot of them were positive, there was also a huge amount of pushback and hatred from it. And yeah, it's just, it's just very overwhelming, especially when anti-Zionism is conflated with Mm anti-Semitism. And people make it seem like it's anti-Semitic to talk about the Israeli occupation. Right. Maxi and I, a few episodes back, did a whole episode on anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism in the vegan community. And, and we talked about, you know, anti-Semitism is obviously a real thing. Um, and there's like a long, long yeah. history of it. And it's a problem both on the left and the right. And it's a problem both on the Zionist side and the anti-Zionist side and everything. But it shouldn't be conflated with the issue. It shouldn't keep us from talking about oh, yeah. the active, like, colonizing occupation that is going on on Palestinian land. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just so grateful that I have you to talk about th- this stuff with. And um Particularly, so this episode was inspired by somebody who reached out to me and who said, hey, you know, have you heard of this vegan vibe tour <sighs> and um, that's been going on? You know, these these four bloggers. I'll talk a little bit more about the tour in a second. I just briefly want to kind of explain the situation with Vibe Israel and Vegan Vibe and Brand Israel as well. 
And, you know, she said, I think it would be really great to talk about it because it's getting such a huge amount of reach in the vegan community. And so terrible. it's true that looking into it, I, I had not realized how much exposure this Vibe right. Israel trip got. Um, so just quickly, they invited four hugely popular food bloggers to spend a week in Israel. Caitlin Shoemaker also known as from my bowl on Instagram, who has 275,000 Instagram followers and 387,000 YouTube followers. Sweet Simple Vegan with 206,000 Instagram followers and 40,000 YouTube followers. The Buddhist Chef with nearly 50,000 Instagram followers and Rebel Recipes with 211,000 Instagram followers. So this is, you know, these are people with huge audiences. I only followed uh, Caitlin Shoemakers quite, quite closely. You know, she seems incredibly sweet and well-intentioned. I like her YouTube channel a lot. Um, this is something Laura and I are going to talk about as well, is like how they're pulling in people uh -huh. who have nothing but, I think, good intentions and who are very uneducated about the conflict. Yeah. Um, and that's that's what's scariest to me is like, it looks so jovial and so positive and and like such a project you want to support and want to believe in and right. at the end of the day is very successful at diffusing an image of Israel as a safe place for vegans, as a place where you can go and have just an abundance of options. Yeah. So to give a bit of context, Israel has for a long time been hailed in the vegan community. Yeah. An article published last year in The Independent reported Tel Aviv alone has over 400 vegan and vegetarian restaurants and justifiably refers to itself as the plant-based capital of the world. So the article goes on to explain that Israel is particularly well-suited as the vegan hub because of the unparalleled freshness of its produce, its communal markets, and its national staples, which include hummus and falafel, that are already vegan. A little bit more later on the cultural appropriation of uh, talking about hummus and falafel as, you know, Israeli's national food because, because it's not. <laughs> because Israel is... 70 years old and hummus and falafel are a lot older than that right yeah and they explain that in the past six years the explosion of plant-based restaurants has transformed israel's population of just 8 million into the largest vegan nation per capita in the world the tourism ministry now promotes israel as a vegan nation and tel aviv is at the heart of the movement so this was also a very bolstered by Gary Yurofsky's presence in the movement. Um, he, you know, had the, the best speech you'll ever hear, I think, that video that went viral on YouTube. But he's also quoted as saying that Palestinians are some of the craziest people in the world, or no, the craziest people in the world, excuse me. <laughs> that was too generous of me. And he's done a bunch of other pretty gross things that we talk about extensively in my YouTube video with Laura, so we're not going to spend too much time talking about Gary Yurofsky today. But anyhow, vegan washing is part of Brand Israel, uh, a government-backed campaign to promote Israel as a cool, progressive, modern, and innovative cultural hub. It was launched as a response to decades of pro-Palestinian activism that denounced Israel as a settler colonial state founded on the genocide of Palestinian people, which maintains its power through a system of apartheid and violence against the Palestinian people. 
we'll talk about the connection between Vibe Israel and Brand Israel in a quick moment. Vibe Israel, by the way, is the NGO that sponsored the tour Vegan Vibe that these four very influential bloggers went on. And before I hand over the floor to Laura, I wanted to read you the promotional message of Vibe Israel because it really could not be any clearer. Uh, I think I'll also, it really is. Part of me thinks that the fact that they're so unabashed in disclosing their intentions, which is literally, we need to invest a lot of money in trying to change Israel's image because people are starting to catch on to the fact that it's a illegal, unethical occupation. Almost makes me think it's in their favor because you can't think that there's like a, a, dark propaganda agenda behind such a blatantly clear message of wanting to do propaganda. Yeah, right. <laughs> but so their little their little blurb and again I, I remind you that this is the the organization that sponsored vegan vibes that we're gonna be talking about. Um so they say Vibe Israel is igniting a new conversation about Israel as a vibrant source of creativity and innovation. Welcome to an Israel of flavors, music, business, and medicine, aromas, arts, and culture. This is how we're doing it. We're inviting the world's online opinion leaders into our home. Bloggers with millions of followers who write about photography, architecture, family, science, food, fashion, music, clean tech. They spend a week in Israel and share their experience. Above all, they fall in love with the people and the vibe influencing millions of people around the world, creating businesses and cultural connections. That's not all Vibe Israel does, though. We bring global brand events to Israel. We produce marketing kits of Israel as the startup nation. We develop online campaigns about Israel, positioning Israel as a hub of creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship, reintroducing the world to our home. There's no place like home, and there's no place like Israel. Oh my god. So <laughs> they forgot to mention the part about how the innovation is in new and innovative ways to kill people. But anyway, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So, Laura, can you talk a little bit about how this fits into a brand Israel and how Vibe Israel is a part of their agenda and how Vegan Vibe as a branch of Vibe Israel also promotes the agenda of brand Israel. Wow, I said Israel so many times in that sentence. Right. <laughs> Which is what they want. Israel, 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 Israel. Come to Israel. <laughs> Make Aliyah to Israel, yes. <laughs> well, I think that basically the best way to answer that question is to go into my little history tour of brand Israel and what it is and what its function is, who is funding it, who's behind it, what it's all about. Mm -hmm. So basically, Brand Israel was founded in uh, 2006. 2006 was a very significant year in Israeli and Palestinian history, because that was actually the year that Yasser Arafat died. For the listeners who don't know, can you talk about who Yasser Yeah, I was just about to say. So Yasser Arafat was the head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Um, of course, he's 
the one that I was talking about earlier that I used to see when I was a kid at the UN speaking and everybody said he was a terrorist, but I was like, what is he doing at the UN? So uh, Palestinian Liberation Organization was the government of Palestine. And um, right. of course, if you talk to Zionists, they'll say they're a terrorist organization. But they existed for many years, um, you know, from the time when the Israeli state was created in 1948 up until Arafat died in 2006. So he was the leader for like, not that whole time, obviously, but for many decades, like since the 70s. And when he died, that left this huge vacuum. And so what ended up happening was that the PLO turned into what is now called the Palestinian Authority or Fatah. And then there was another political party that rose up. I'm sure you've heard this name before, Hamas. And Hamas actually ended up becoming the government in Gaza. So they had like an election. And um, the PA stayed the government in the West Bank, but Gaza went with Hamas. So... When that happened, Israel decided to punish Gaza for electing Hamas, and that is when they actually put the blockade on Gaza, which is basically, well, okay, I should backtrack for a second here. There were actually Israeli settlers living in Gaza at that time, up until that point, and they cleared those people out. The Israeli military actually went in and cleared those people out. And so Gaza, you know, everybody originally thought that this was going to be a good thing because it seemed like the Palestinians were going to have Gaza as their own. And then essentially after that, Israel turned it into a giant concentration camp, open air concentration camp. They blocked the borders so that the Palestinians can't get in and out of Gaza. They're trapped in there. And then they put this horrific blockade on them where they started starving them. They wouldn't let any food in there. They wouldn't let any medicine in there and, and bombing them on an ongoing basis. So that's what was happening in 2006. Mm -hmm. But also what was happening in 2006 was that Israel was realizing that they had an image problem in the rest of the world particularly in America, which is in the U.S., uh, which is very important to them because the U.S. is funding them. Um, actually, we are giving them $3.5 billion a year in uh, money and weapons. And um, also because they want young U.S. American Jews to emigrate to Israel. And that's a process they call the Make Aliyah. So that's uh, when a Jewish person claims their quote-unquote right of return and moves to Israel because the policy of Israel is that any Jewish person anywhere in the world is entitled to come and get citizenship there just on the basis of them being Jewish. On the other hand, the Palestinians who were born there can't even get back into their own home. Palestinians living in the diaspora, some of them are still in refugee camps 50, 60, 70 years later still cannot go home, but any Jewish person can pick up and move. And this is essential mm -hmm. to Israel's existence as a Jewish state, because in order to maintain that, they have to maintain demographic supremacy. They have to have more Jews living there than Palestinians. So it is absolutely vital to their existence that they have Jews making Aliyah to Israel. So they realized that they had this image problem and they realized that um, basically a lot of 
young Americans. And the reason they want young people, of course, is because they want you to move to Israel, get married, and start having children. And that way you can propagate. I almost want to say propagate the species, but you can think too much in animal rights terms, but you can propagate mm-hmm. the race. <laughs> and then they will maintain their demographic majority. Mm-hmm. Very much how white supremacists think, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, white nationalists. So um, anyway, they uh, so they really wanted to reach the young Jewish and also just young American, U.S. American liberals. They felt that that was their target demographic. And specifically, for some reason, young males in like the mid-teens to uh, early 30s range. So what happened was that the foreign ministry uh, decided that they were going to create this initiative called Brand Israel, and they were going to funnel large sums of money into improving Israel's image in the world. And what they found out through a lot of market research was that there was quite a lot of support for Israel amongst the U.S. public, but that they weren't really excited about Israel. They were kind of apathetic. They saw it as very sort of Uh, religious Mm -hmm. and old-fashioned and traditionalist, and it just wasn't appealing to young people. And so they felt that Israel's image needed a makeover, essentially. Mm -hmm. So what they started doing was they started collaborating with um, some of the biggest ad agencies in New York, actually. They were working with Rubicam and Young. They were working with Saatchi and Saatchi. And they were conducting all of this market research, trying to find out what will appeal to young U.S. Americans in that in those demographics, and especially again the liberals and obviously the Jews, but also just basically young people and liberals were their two main targets uh, outside of the Jewish community. So the first thing that they did, the first initiative that they launched, brace yourselves, feminists. This is really gruesome. <laughs> so they um, they they put out a spread in Maxim magazine, which for those who don't know is a men's magazine, of women of the IDF. IDF is the Israeli, quote-unquote, defense forces. This is actually the Israeli military that is occupying the Palestinian territories of the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, as well as the Syrian territory of the Golan Heights. So they put out this spread. Now, in Israel, um, Mm -hmm. all genders have to serve in the military. So they put out this spread of women who have served in the military, and it was like these models in bikinis and Gal Gadot, we all know her, of course, from Wonder Woman, you know, this image of her like splayed out in this bikini in this very sexualized, provocative pose. And they had like this gala and it was sponsored by Maxim and they had this big spread in Maxim mm-hmm. magazine. And then after that, they conducted more market research and oh, what do you know? All the young guys were suddenly interested in Israel. Uh, right. So that was kind of how they started. But they really still wanted to reach the liberal demographic. And, you know, outright sexism is not probably going to appeal to liberal women in particular. And so they had to find something else. <laughs> and so as they were um, scouting around trying to find what was going to be the next thing that they were going to use to market themselves, 
suddenly they fell upon the issue of gay rights. And they suddenly realized... Wow, I did not realize that they didn't, they hadn't started with pinkwashing at all, that it started as like a hetero campaign to recruit. It absolutely did. Interesting. Yeah, it was so incredibly heterosexist and heterosexual, and, you know, yeah. And it was interesting because they kind of went from that, then they had like a little bit of uh, a more feminist campaign as well. Yeah, I mean, a lot of like people in the mainstream feminist movement support Israel for that reason. Right. As being kind of like the only feminist country in the Middle East, yada, yada, yada. Right. And of course, the whole underlying sort of subtext of that is, oh, we're not like those barbaric Muslims, you know, who abuse their women and who hang gay people and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Look how civilized and progressive we are in comparison to the rest of the Middle East. Of course. So, yeah, and of course, I mean, even now, you know, you keep getting these articles, yes, you can be a liberal, uh, a Zionist, and a feminist. No, you can't. But we have intersectionality to thank for people starting to, white women at least, starting to see through that a little more. But uh, anyway, so they, yeah, so they were kind of looking for their next thing. Then they, mm-hmm. and oh, I should mention that in the midst of this, they also were kind of funding like a lot of food festivals and wine festivals. And they were one of the sponsors of the Toronto International Film Festival. And they had this whole section of the film festival, Spotlight Israel. Now, I remember at the time that there were a lot of complaints from people in the film industry uh, community that, you know, were supporting Palestine and they were like, what the heck is this? But, you know, at that stage, of course, none of us were really connecting the dots. This was all part of the same sort of initiative. So eventually in 2009, the International Gay and Lesbian Travel Association announced that they were going to have an official, their official conference in Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. And that same year, Stand With Us. Now, Stand With Us is a blatantly Zionist organization that actually, like, a large percentage of Hollywood is involved with. And they told the Jerusalem Post that they were undertaking a campaign to promote Israel as a gay mecca. (laughs) Did they use that word? No, they didn't use that word. That's my word. (laughs) Just for extra irony's sake. (laughs) We hear it again and again that Israel is the vegan mecca, so I wouldn't be surprised if Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I mean, that's such an, iron- an ironic term to use, you know, the vegan Mecca. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> like, what a slap in the face to Muslims on top of everything else that they're using the word Mecca. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so that happened. And then the foreign ministry actually told Ynet, which is an Israeli news website, that they were going to be sponsoring a gay Olympics delegation to, quote, show the world Israel's diverse and liberal face. So um, this basically continued after that. They, uh, 2010, they had um, the Tel Aviv Tourism Board collaborated with the main LGBTQ rights organization in Israel to launch Tel Aviv Gay Vibe. Mm, There's that word again. Right. Um, And then in April 2010, they actually launched Israeli Pride Month in San Francisco. So they were actually funding a gay pride festival with a focus on Israel and San Francisco. 
So around this time, this was getting so blatantly obvious that something was rotten in Tel Aviv that um, there was an organization called Queers Undermining Israeli Terrorism, and they were radical queer, mostly people of color um, in San Francisco, that pretty much saw through what was going on. And they were the ones who started using the term pinkwashing. Although I've heard that actually the term originally came from Ali Abulima, who is a Palestinian writer and activist, and he runs a really fantastic website called The Electronic Intifada. Mm-hmm. So he was the one who originally coined that term, and then the acronym is QUIT, Q-U-I-T, but it's Queers Undermining Israeli Terrorism. They started using that term. And um, meanwhile, the and they were trying to protest it, and they were really trying to say, you know, especially Arab queer activists were trying to say, look at what is going on here. Mm-hmm. This is Israel behind this, you know, using us, exploiting our movement, exploiting our struggle for liberation to make themselves look progressive. Meanwhile, the uh, Israeli efforts continued unabated to exploit gay rights. And I'm specifically saying gay rights because, of course, they weren't even touching the trans issue um, or anything to do with gender nonconformity or anything like that. That just would have been, you know, too weird for their image, their brand name. <laughs> but they could get, you know, very gender conforming, you know, Ken and Barbie Donald model type. Yeah, I've actually been struck by how normative their their campaigns for gay Israel art. Like if you go on their their website, yeah, Ken is a perfect way to describe it. It's these like tall, white, speedo-wearing men. Nothing wrong with that, but, (laughs) you know. Well, there's a real history with that, actually, because when Israel was first formed, of course, they were coming out of 2,000 years of oppression in Europe. They were coming out of the Holocaust. They were coming out of, now again, Even when I really think about it, even right from the very start, they've always had this concern with image and branding. Because at that time, their image was Jews are little and weak and scrawny, (laughs) or they're, you know, like dumpy and they're sickly and they're weak. And they're not able to fight, of course, the Germans who were the quote unquote Aryan. Um, you know, the strong and the vibrant, vibrant, and the healthy and the blonde and the, you know, the whole nine yards. And so what they started doing was actually right from the start, they were trying to rebrand themselves in this very horrifyingly, not only oppressive in terms of white supremacist standards of beauty and that sort of thing cosmetically, but also in terms of health. It was extremely ableist and ageist right from the start of we want to protect this image of youth, of health, of militarism, Mm -hmm. and of whiteness. And um, that is something that really goes very deeply back into their history. And you see it all over this current branding image, except for another part that I'm going to get to where they're trying to exploit now, um, quote unquote, diversity. (laughs) Um, 
but that's really at the root of it is this sort of trying to mold themselves into this Aryan white supremacist patriarchal militaristic image. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Because when we did the interview with Mexi on anti-Semitism, I actually looked into biblical imagery and all the horrid like imagery there was around the the Jewish mo- money launderer with like the hooked noses and and like small and scrawny, etc. And I hadn't made that connection actually, even though I had noticed that the gay Israeli the imagery around promoting that brand was so Aryan-like and white supremacist-like. Um, but I, right. that's, a, that's a really interesting right. point I hadn't thought about um, as also dispelling this like racist imagery of Jews in the past. Very racist, very ableist. Absolutely. Very, yeah, lookist, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. this is so horrifying, but actually an Israeli leftist friend of mine, um, big solidarity, um, Palestinian solidarity activist, also a vegan, she actually told me, and also feminist, and actually I think she's also gay as well, so these are like, all of these issues are hitting her, you know, all of these exploitative campaigns are hitting her. Mm-hmm. And she told me that when the, this is so horrifying, when the Jews first came from Europe that had just come from the concentration camps, there were already European Jews who had come much earlier to Palestine, even prior to the Holocaust. So they'd been living there already for several decades at that stage. And when the Jews came over from Europe that had just come out of the camps, those Jews who'd been living in Palestine actually called them soapies. The reason why they called them soapies was because of this whole, now, this has never really been fully confirmed of whether this actually happened, but this rumor, at least, that the Nazis made soap out of their skin and their... That's so horrific. And they mocked them for that. They were like, you are weak, you are pathetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, just horrifying, you know, this whole eugenics influence oh, in yeah. Israel. And it really comes from a very deep rooted insecurity at the end of the day that does come from their historical trauma and that does come from this inferiority complex that they will always have. Maybe they won't always have it. Maybe they'll overcome it, but I think they'll only overcome it by actually doing right by the Palestinians and and standing in solidarity with them rather than continuing to abuse and violate them. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so we're continuing with this horrendous history of uh, exploitation of gay rights. So in July of that same year, 2010, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, which is a big Jewish-led organization that is supposed to be anti bigotry, anti-hate, but that is extremely Zionist. They, again, they hosted Stand With Us, so they're Stand With Us again, uh, very overtly Zionist, unlike the ADL, to discuss gay rights in Israel and and a gay presence in the Israeli Defense Forces. <laughs> so they want to make sure that you know that they have a gay-friendly military. And it's also vegan-friendly, right? Exactly! (laughs) You can request special boots that are made out of faux leather and special berets that are made out of faux wool. And you can be gay. It's really... And you can request them to be pink and have glitter as well. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
That makes everything that they're doing okay. Right. So here we have these repeating patterns they keep using over and over again. And once you know the patterns, and once you know what to look for, it's like, oh my God, there they are up to their shenanigans yet again. Mm -hmm. So yes, uh, basically that's kind of some backstory on how they exploited gay rights. But now I'm also going to talk about the fact that they have exploited the environmental movement as well. And actually, they were, so again, Brand Israel was one of the main sponsors of the People's Climate March in New York City. Yeah, that's shocking. Shocking. Yes. You know, it's very funny because if you look at like their actual track record on these issues, they're horrifying. (laughs) They're one of the biggest polluters. They're number 33 on a list of 36 countries for air pollution. Wow. And number, yeah, and number 22 out of 33 on water pollution. And like in the top 10, the highest meat consumption per capita countries as well. Meat consumption in the top five. And actually, I was, this was very interesting. I was reading some actual statistics from Tobias Lanard, of all people. So I Who's are you familiar with Tobias Lanard? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. So Tobias Lanard is actually one of these effective altruism figureheads. Ah, yes, effective altruism. <laughs> <laughs> I have my own video on that on YouTube if you're interested to check it out. Right. So I know you know about the effective altruism. Yes, yes. So he is one of these wonderful people that thinks that utilitarianism and capitalism is going to save the world and turn it. Not quite vegan, but close enough. A little closer to veganism, or at least they'll eat more chickens instead of cows or something. Right. No, excuse me, more cows instead of chickens. How could I forget? Because you have to eat less more cows chicken. instead of chicken. Right, right. Because it's technically harming less lives. Right. You're not. You have to kill a lot of chickens to get okay, okay. the body composition of a cow. Yeah. Right, right, right. Anyway, Tobias Leonard actually went to Israel uh, to check out the vegan movement there. But very interestingly, I have to hand it to him, he also went to the Israeli-occupied Palestinian West Bank. And not he didn't go to the settlements as a guest of the settlement <laughs> as a guest of the settlers because i have to say that if i heard that on the surface i would think oh he probably went to the settlements in the west bank so just to explain to the listeners what the settlements are basically these are housing complexes for jews only in the palestinian territory of the west bank this was the thing that I mentioned earlier that they used to have these in Gaza, but then they yeah. cleared them out. But they still have them in the West Bank, and they're like these these apartheid complexes. Generally, what will happen is that when they're building one, there will be Palestinian houses standing there, and the Israeli military will just come in and bulldoze those houses. And they don't even give warning to the Palestinians. Palestinians are at work or school. They come home, their house is demolished. There's nothing they can do. They have no rights. They get no compensation. They're left to fend for themselves. And then they build these apartheid complexes on top of that land. Or sometimes they will even just take over the Palestinian homes. And it's like, oh, you don't live here anymore. Too bad at you. That's an Israeli family living in there now. So anyway, sometimes people say they've been to the West Bank. And what they actually mean is that they went to these apartment complexes. And these apartment complexes are actually connected by 
Jews-only roads. They have Jews-only schools, Jews-only hospitals. So there are like these, this whole apartheid system where you could just stay in that and never even see what's going on with the Palestinians. But he didn't do that. And I have to give him credit. He actually went, he went to East Jerusalem, which is Palestinian. And then he also went to Hebron. Mm -hmm. Hebron is one of the worst situations in all of the Israeli occupied West Bank. When I was in Palestine, I didn't even get to go to Hebron because we were supposed to do a performance. It was uh, like a theater tour. I don't know if I mentioned that before, but it was, we were supposed to do a performance in Hebron and to get to the location of the show, the children, the Palestinian children had to walk by the Israeli settlements. And normally when that happens, if you can believe this, the Palestinians have to arrange for Israeli military accompaniment for the children. Because if the Israeli military does not accompany the children when they're walking past the settlements, the settlers are likely to come out and actually attack the children physically. I know that is shocking, but that is what happens. They will actually come out and attack the children physically. And the reason why they do this is because they believe that this is their land, given to them by God. It goes all the way back to the Bible. That's what the promised land wow. is all about. They want to make life so miserable for the Palestinians that they will leave. Mm -hmm. So for this show, um, the Palestinian organizers didn't manage to arrange the Israeli military accompaniment, and we never even ended up going to Hebron for that reason. But Tobias Lanart went to mm -hmm. Hebron, and he saw the situation, and even he had to admit, you know, he, he kind of gave the whole BS, oh, there were two sides to every story, blah, blah. But then he flat out said it. I just, I can't imagine how this could possibly be just. It's just not right, you know? So Tobias Lanar, while he was in Israel, he did some research on what the real statistics were of the Israeli mm -hmm. veganism. And what he found out was that they're actually much lower than what we are being told. He said that according to the Central Bureau of Statistics, he wrote this like last year, so this is not old information. He said 4.7% of Israelis are vegetarian, 1.7% identify as vegan. Really? You always hear it's a 10%. So we always hear 10%. He said, you know, some will say 5% when you're actually there, but that's like the high end estimate is 5%, mm -hmm. more like 5% vegetarian and less than 2% vegan. So yeah, they're not, they're not anywhere near a vegan nation. Well, can you, can I ask you, yeah. I feel like some of the people listening to this episode might say, well, you know, shouldn't we make a distinction between Israeli occupation and their government and the Israeli vegans? Shouldn't we dissociate the two and just embrace those who are vegan because that is the cause that we care about. Who cares if they're Israeli and if they promote a Zionist agenda? Right. So the first thing I want to say in response to that is that this is, again, where Vibe Israel and Brand Israel comes in again, because Vibe Israel is promoting uh, Israel, of course, as a vegan nation. It turns out the CEO of Vibe Israel, uh, Joanna Landau, is on the board of directors for Brand Israel. <laughs> Brand Israel, as you may recall, I mentioned earlier, 
is a creation of the Israeli foreign ministry. So that is not to say that there is not a real vegan movement in Israel, but there is no question at this stage that it is being exploited and it is being promoted in much the same way that gay rights was. You know, so this is why we're hearing about things like, Mm -hmm. oh, the, um, you know, Israeli military is gay is vegan friendly and um you know we serve them vegan meals and vegan berets and vegan leather boots and blah 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 this is why we have a vegan birthright tour so to talk about birthright birthright was created in 1996 to get young jews in the diaspora which means living in other parts of the world not in israel to come to israel and just fall in love with the place and want to move there and get married and have babies. Lots of babies, preferably. They basically created this birth, so the name says it all, birthright. It is your right by virtue of your birth as a Jewish person to move to Israel, to come to Israel, to see Israel, and ultimately to move to Israel. Yeah, I cannot tell you how many people I grew up with who went on a birthright, but also how how incredibly normalized it was in my mind for so, so many years that indeed, yeah. you know, because of their history, they had a right to go back to Israel. And it wasn't until I first heard someone make the argument, you know, like, why do these people who have never been to Israel have the right to supposedly return, even though they've never been, when there are people literally kilometers away that are kept from mm-hmm. entering Israel, you know, that are Palestinian. And I was like, wait, yeah, what? Yeah, really? <laughs> I mean, even without knowing a lot about the situation, I was like, yeah, it's it's true that like that uh, smells a bit fishy. Right. That's the whole thing is that like they, everything's like sort of smooth, but then there are these like little ruptures. Yeah. Don't quite fit. Yeah. Um. So yeah, they created this uh, tour it is fully 100% funded by the Israeli government. You get an all-expense-paid trip to Israel. I mean, yeah, like, that sounded so fun to me as a teen. I was like, no I can't. Kidding. Yeah. It's like, I want to fucking do that. And I know. I remember it did cross my mind for a little while there, you know. I was I like, bet. oh, wow, I could get a free trip to Israel. I like, really love what the hell is free nowadays, you know, except for birthright, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, I and you know, this was at a time when I didn't really know what was going on there. I can totally see why people would be like, yeah, I'll take that. Oh, 100%. Yeah. You know, and uh, so they pay for everything, all expense paid trip. I mean, the images to advertise these things. It looks like a Kankiki tour. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, we're all young people. Like, you're going to love a Palooza or something. It's like, right. it's so gruesome. I mean, that shit looked fun. <laughs> yeah, it looks like Coachella or something. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, driving through the Negev Desert with the wind blowing in our hair. And, right. You know. Pick yourself up a hot soldier. Right. I was just about to say beat me to it yeah (laughs) yeah we love idf boys oh Mm -hmm. my god it's so horrifying and it's yeah so it's and it's for ages 18 to 26 
Um, but I just saw that they have a new one now. Finally, they're like, if you're 27 to 32, you can finally do our young professionals tour of Israel. So I guess they're getting desperate. They'll even take 32 year olds with their Gross. old decaying eggs. <laughs> oh my God. So um, anyway, this is basically what they have been doing since the mid nineties, but just last year they launched a new a new birthright tour and they've got like all these different ones i mean i was looking at them and it was like oh you know birthright for film lovers and birthright for food and wine oh lovers. my god are you joking and now they've got vegan birthright and so you can tour the country and they will show you all the wonderful vegan food that they have appropriated <laughs> and uh are claiming is israeli so we were going to talk about that you mentioned earlier, and I do want to say something about that. So basically, all this food, um, mm -hmm. Middle Eastern food, traditionally, a lot of it is just naturally vegan. Uh, falafel is vegan. Hummus is vegan. Baba ganoush, uh, which is like an eggplant spread, is vegan. Tabouleh, uh, ful, like all of these different dishes are naturally vegan. And um, they are traditional regional dishes. Um, so they are Arab dishes. Um, they are also, of course, traditional dishes of what they call Mizrahi Jews, which are Jews from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Um, and they are traditional Palestinian dishes. And now all of a sudden Israel is claiming that they are Israeli dishes. <laughs> this is the cuisine of Israel. Mm -hmm. But of course, Israel has only been around for 70 years. And so... Um, again, this insecurity issue of them not really feeling very solid in their identity because they are a colonizer co country and a very new colonizer country at that. And they are trying to mm -hmm. build this identity by stealing everything that already existed there. So you can take a vegan birthright tour. The army is being marketed as vegan. Netanyahu <laughs> has expressed uh, interest in going vegan, you know, but I mean, it's a the the brand Israel thing is a really clear sign that this is coming directly from the government. Um, oh, uh, the Israeli Board of Tourism is promoting vegan tours of Israel, even outside of birthright. If you're just somebody who wants to come to Israel, you can take a vegan tour, vegan cruise to Israel. I mean, there is no question about it that this is something that, and, and it makes sense they would use it in this way. Because something else I really wanted to bring up in this interview is we as a movement have kind of put ourselves at risk of being exploited in this way because we have embraced consumerism, right. vegan consumerism. And that aligns perfectly with a propaganda campaign like this. Um, if we as a movement were resolutely anti-capitalist, if we were resolutely anti-colonialist, mm -hmm. if we stood in clear solidarity with the oppressed people of the world, mm -hmm. they would not be using us in this way. It's so true. There's no way that if veganism was politicized as an anti-oppression stance, the Israeli government would be able to capitalize on our movement in this way. Right. But as long as we keep this, you know, oh, it's just about, you know, vegan food and vegan clothes and non-leather this and non-blow that and blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and even the animal rights, you know, that at least is an anti-oppression stance. But if we make it exclusively about non-human animal rights, 
that that also is very safe for them mm -hmm. to use in that way. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and also I, I think the very individualized notion of health that oh, yeah. is really dominant in certain groups of veganism, you know, like have a clean, fresh, organic, colorful diet. Absolutely. Um, lends itself very well to the image that Israel wants to promote. Right. And also, you know, there has been five years in a row a huge vegan congress oh, organized yes. in Tel Aviv about vegan health. I think it's about vegan ethics as well. Um, but there are a tremendous amount of health conferences that right. go on in Tel Aviv to promote plant-based eating. And the fact that veganism has been associated with this almost like purity organic, like Alita's diet also lends itself very well to the new way that they want to promote themselves. Right. And I mean, this goes directly back to what I was saying earlier about the origins of Israel and the image that they originally wanted to promote, which was this image of strength, vitality, militarism, white supremacist beauty standards, mm -hmm. eugenics. Absolutely. Yeah. The way that the vegan movement has gone in the West has really primed itself for that. It's like, you know, of course they would try to exploit it that way. Mm -hmm. What do you say to. Gary Urofsky's argument, not that, you know, I'm dying to talk about him, but um, I remember one of his arguments for the fact that Israel was going vegan in such massive numbers is that, you know, exploited and victimized people are more likely to empathize with exploited and victimized animals. And but not that, exploited and victimized Palestinians right. or Africans or <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that one. Um, yeah, I mean, I but I think that is like a narrative that also is pretty prevalent in the vegan movement. Is that well, of course, Israel would be more likely to go vegan because they're a nation of oppressed people. Can you talk a little bit about like that victimized narrative of? Israelis and how that is utilized by the Israeli government to really use their citizens as agents of diffusing this ideology to legitimize the state? Yeah, it's incredibly disturbing about that because the truth of the matter is that um, that logic could and should make sense, but doesn't <laughs> uh, because clearly it's not consistent. Um, but you know, if you know anything about the history of the Holocaust, there is an amazing book. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It should be required reading for pretty much everyone in the human race, as far as I'm concerned, but certainly anyone who's interested in these issues, um, called Eternal Treblinka by Charles Patterson. And it talks about how the origins of the Holocaust came directly from the animal exploitation industries, how the eugenics movement came out of that, directly out of that, how all the original eugenicists had previous careers in the animal exploitation industries, how they modeled the concentration camps mm -hmm. after slaughterhouses, and in some cases even used slaughterhouses for concentration camps, um, how so many of the Nazis had backgrounds as slaughterers or in some other way worked directly in animal exploitation industries. So yeah, there should be that sort of um, empathy from that heritage. And certainly 
the Jews that actually experienced the Holocaust, that was something that profoundly they made those connections. Um, Isaac Bashev Singer is a great example of that. In fact, the term eternal Treblinka comes from a short story that he wrote about a Holocaust survivor who uh, forms a friendship with a mouse that is in his house. And one day he's looking at this little mouse and he thinks to himself, you know, for animals, all humans are Nazis and it is just an eternal Treblinka for them. Mm-hmm. Treblinka was a Nazi concentration camp. And so he says, you know, um, for animals, we are we are the Nazis. So you would think that there would be that connection there. And I wonder for some of them, I'm not Israeli, so, you know, I can't speak on their behalf in terms of how Mm -hmm. this issue resonates for them. But it's possible that on the one hand, they do have that history that they're very conscious of. I mean, their whole nation exists. That's the whole justification for their nation even existing is that history. Um, So it's constantly, constantly drilled into their heads. But of course, it's drilled into their heads in a way that is always associated with justifying Zionism. And if you know anything about neurology and psychology, you know, when you make those connections repeatedly, Mm -hmm. it actually forms like neural pathways in your brain that, you know, when you think of one, you automatically think of the other. Those associations are so strong. So it's like that's just been drilled into them that Holocaust equals Zionism and Israel. You know, this is the reason why Israel must exist. This is the reason why we must protect Israel always. And so I think that they have kind of shut out, you know, maybe compassion for Palestinians Mm -hmm. on that basis. Mm -hmm. Um, Africans is a whole other story because they've also got a lot of African immigrants coming into the country that they, there's horrifying, horrifying racism against. I won't go into all the details, but it's, it's a shocking level of anti-African racism and actually mm-hmm. uh, they're being kicked out now. Um, so the same sort of like anti-immigrant sentiment that's going on in the U.S. is going on in Israel. And that is actually what is causing the Libyan slave trade because the Africans are being kicked out of Israel and then they're getting abducted by Libyan enslavers and actually, yeah. So Anyway, that would be like a whole thing, other thing I'd have to talk about. But I just mm-hmm. to talk about the Palestinians, um, I feel like they're kind of shutting that off mm-hmm. because they see them as a threat to Israel and Israel must exist because the Jews are always persecuted and they always will be persecuted, blah, blah, blah. And then I think the animal issue, what's possible, might be kind of filling that gap because they may know on some level that it's wrong mm-hmm. and it's kind of like this makes them feel better in some way you know oh, but look I am an ethical person look I care about animals and it's also possible that yes they are identifying with the animals but in this way of animals are innocent completely and animals are blameless for their situation mm, interesting and so that's in a way a very kind of mm-hmm. once you get over the hump of oh I have to I have to actually make a personal sacrifice here of not consuming them anymore uh, then you can feel very noble and you can feel like oh look they're innocent victims of their circumstances and so are we and so 
it's easy to feel morally superior in that way. Mm-hmm. That's just, I mean, that's an outsider's perspective, but that's, I think, possibly what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is a very insightful observation, even for other white people in the vegan movement. I think that veganism oh, yeah. lends itself very well to the white savior complex of wanting to speak for the completely voiceless. And yeah, it was Afco who said veganism is a racial identity for white people. Absolutely. And you know, it's so interesting to bring that up because I've been doing some reading on social identity theory. Mm-hmm. And in social identity theory, you know, basically, it's this whole thing of you, it's a human drive to have this identity, this aspect of your identity that gives you a community or clique or whatever you want to call it. And it's very interesting because it, when I was reading about that, I was like, clearly vegans, white vegans, this is very important to them, uh, this aspect of their identity mm-hmm. vegan, because white people, especially from settler cultures like the US, like Australia, like Israel, they lose their cultural heritage through that. It's replaced by this settler colonial existence that kind of wipes out everything else, mm-hmm. kind of has to wipe everything else out in order to exist. And so because they don't have that anymore, because they don't have community, veganism becomes that thing for them. And so if you really understand social identity theory, then it becomes very clear why, for example, they feel like they need their own flag to start off with, which, by the way, was created by an Israeli. Was it? Yeah, it was an Israeli that designed that. And I can't get over the video because apparently there's some other symbolism to this. But have you seen the video? That Yeah, isn't it like white is for purity or something? Yeah, white is for purity. I cannot believe they said that. Yeah, yeah. and then. Something else that just shocked me in the video was um, there's actually an image of, like, a locked gate. Is there? Okay. Yeah. And I was like, what? (laughs) What does it stand for? So there's... Oh, like, literally, we are a gated community type of thing? That's what I was thinking. I was like, "Um, are you trying to tell us that we're a gated community? (laughs) Right. uh, you know, this is like a membership only club. Like, what the hell is that? Yeah. Um. Apparently, it's a. Do you know what a love lock is? I do not. Oh, a love lock. Yes, like those necklaces. Yeah, but it's like apparently because I didn't know what the heck this was, but then other people were saying, "Oh, it's a love lock," and it's like representing your like, okay. like your eternal commitment to veganism or something. But, or to animal rights, not that they ever talked about them, but, um, but like it was a locked gate. (laughs) Right. So anyway, coming back to what Afco was saying, um, I was like, if you really understand social identity theory, and then you think about how this would apply to white people and veganism and their being vegans as an identity, this is why they feel so threatened by people of color wanting to have their own interpretation of veganism Mm -hmm. through their perspective of a non-white, non-Western perspective, because they feel like they are, it's like, this is our space. This is our identity Mm -hmm. and you are collecting it. This is our thing. Get your own thing. Like that's actually, I think what's going on subconsciously. Totally. And, you know, since animals are like complete victims, 
I think that identifying as their spokesperson, some people get really confused between who is the oppressed person. Is it them or is it the animals? Obviously, it's the animals, you know, but I do think they take on the identity of being the oppressed class. Sometimes. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you can project anything you want onto animals. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> they have no ability to say no. And, you know, it was really interesting because I'm sure you've heard a lot of people, you know, especially a lot of non-vegans, they kind of make jokes about veganism being like a religion. Right. And, you know, that we're like vegan zealots. And somebody called me a vegangelical the other day. It was really interesting because I was thinking about that recently and I was like, what does veganism and religion have in common? Well, actually, I hate to say it, but religion, organized religion, they can say whatever they want and claim it was God who said it or God who wanted it. And it's it's an absent referent, which is what Carol Adams always talks about. You know, mm-hmm. this oh, yeah. entity that is like, that's what everybody's supposed to be talking about or, you know, um, their interests are being represented or whatever, but they have no say in the matter. Mm-hmm. That's God. <laughs> it's like, well, God wants this. God wants mm-hmm. that. Well, the animals want this. Mm-hmm. The animals don't like it when you do that. And that is used as a mechanism for control. Totally. Yeah, that's such a great point. It's really a way to rid yourself of any kind of accountability. Right. No accountability. So um, it's a great way to control others through this absent referent that you claim to speak on behalf of, you know, voice of the voiceless, but they have no say in the matter. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make sure to ask you another question because going through Caitlin's Instagram. So for yeah. my goal, I'm I, I'm really not picking on her in particular. She's just the one that I follow most closely, and also she's been getting quite a bit of pushback. Right. I don't know if quite a bit. I don't know proportionally what it represents. If it's just a few dissonant voices who are like, "Hey, it's really not cool to be participating in vegan washing," or if it's like actually a notable number of people. Anyway, I have no idea. But she made a video, like she spoke on her Instagram story about mm-hmm. the fact that this was only a food trip, that she had no political motives and was very uninformed about the situation. And one comment that kept coming up again and again. So I actually cop- I, I copied one of the comments. Um, because I I think that it was a very good example of this Mm -hmm. position that kept coming up in defense of Catherine, uh, Caitlin, sorry. Um, So this comment says, Oh my God, if people avoided traveling to countries that didn't have a corrupt government slash conflict, there would be nowhere left to travel to. There's conflict everywhere, some worse than others, but slamming a food blogger for traveling to a place of conflict when it is pretty obvious it was for a vegan trip I think is totally unacceptable. I live in Australia and don't support their policies like the refugee crisis. People live in the USA and wouldn't support the gun laws, but that doesn't mean you should just avoid going to those countries. Visiting a country doesn't mean you support their government. Mm-hmm. So there's a few things that I want to weed out for this message from this comment. First, why is it worse to travel to Right. Israel, isn't it selective to bash someone for traveling to Israel when, you know, the U.S. has a bunch of obviously imperialist, disgusting history and pol- like a history of slavery and, and actively imperialist mm-hmm. policies still being um, still being waged across the world. So that is the first question. And my second question would be, 
if all travel to Israel right. for you is the same and the same amount of problematic, or if you think that, you know, traveling on behalf of a state-sponsored Israel trip is worse. Okay, so um, let's address the first question first. So, yes, absolutely, Israel is not the only country that has a horrifying human rights record. Although I will say, believe it or not, that last year, the UN voted them the worst human rights criminals in the world. Really? Yes. (laughs) So they are pretty freaking bad. Mm -hmm. And that's compared to the US, which Mm -hmm. I honestly think is, I personally would say the US is strong contender for, I would say, even beating Israel on that Mm -hmm. level, because what we do to the world is global, whereas theirs is more regional. Although they are spreading their, I won't say ways, what will I say, they're spreading their mm, talents, but... um, Right, and then there's the whole point that Israel is doing it with American dollars anyway, so it's like one big... Right, exactly, and not just American dollars, but American weapons. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the weapons they have come directly from us. In fact, they're even stamped. I've seen pictures of the stamped, made in the USA. Damn. Oh my God, I feel so proud to be American. Looking at that, mm-hmm. yeah, so they're certainly not the only human rights abusers, although they are uh, severe. Um, but there's two big differences. First of all, of course, it's is the fact that they are conducting this illegal and violation of international law, military occupation of part of their land. So it's it's kind of complicated because they're controlling the land, but it isn't supposed to be theirs by any standard. Um, that is supposed to be Palestinian land, um, but they are military militarily occupying it. So the best analogy I could give for that would be like if um, the United States military was occupying native reservations in the U.S., and I mean like occupying them 24-7 for decades and um, you know regularly bombing them and uh, locking people in there and intentionally starving them and mm-hmm. um, bulldozing their homes and building apartheid settlements. If we were doing that to the Native Americans, well, I don't want to say Native Americans, mm-hmm. Native Turtle Islanders. But if we were doing that to First Nations people, uh, that would be more similar to what is happening with Israel and Palestine. And of course, the other thing is that we are, as you said before, funding them and arming them. So our relationship with that situation is different than, let's say, other human rights abusers in the world that we're not funding and arming. But we're funding and arming quite a few of them, actually. (laughs) Not to the extent of Israel, but we're funding and arming a lot of human rights abusers, not just Israel. But the really, really big difference, and I really pray that the listeners have gotten to this stage of the interview because I feel like this point is getting lost and it is so, so important, is that the Palestinians have organized a boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement to put international, economic, and of course publicity also pressure on Israel to at least end their illegal military occupation of the Palestinian territories, to end their apartheid system, and to end their ethnic cleansing policies. This boycott movement is modeled after the South African BDS movement 
Um, so basically, the South Africans had a movement that was pretty much the same. Uh, Nelson Mandela, of course, was one of the leaders of that movement. And the Palestinians got the idea from them and thought, well, we will try and use a similar movement to end apartheid in Israel as the South Africans ended apartheid in South Africa. So when you go to Israel, especially under these circumstances, now, if you just go as a tourist and you just kind of like go around sightseeing or whatever, um, it's not, I mean, yeah, you're supporting Israeli businesses and mm -hmm. that's kind of a violation of the boycott in and of itself, but that's not the end of the world. And of course, also, if you go there, you have the opportunity to go to Israeli occupied Palestine to the West Bank. You can't get into Gaza because Gaza is blocked off, but you can go to the Israeli-occupied Palestinian West Bank, and that is something that I think everyone should do if they can to see what is really going on there. So right. that's a very different story. If this had just been that those, you know, the vegan YouTubers, bloggers had gone on vacation there, that would be a very different story. But mm -hmm. the real issue is. The boycott specifically says, do not go to Israel and make public mm -hmm. appearances. Because when you go and you make a public appearance, Israel is using that to promote their image in the world. So whether you go there to speak or whether you go there to perform or whether you go there to, um, you know, if it's something like this where it's going to be filmed, anything like that, you are in serious violation of the boycott then right and then of course on top of that this was even worse because it wasn't even like they were just going to some organization within israel mm -hmm. uh to you know speak at some event or something but this was actually like very i mean you said it when you described that five israel video they blatantly say their mission is to improve israel's image in the world that's what that's all about oh yeah they were basically offered a free Right. Idyllic trip in exchange for blogging heavily about it exactly. to their hundreds of thousands of followers. Exactly. And they very explicitly said it too and in their post announcing the trip, like we're going to Israel for the sole purpose of with the exact wording I think was for the sole purpose of eating plant based food and raising awareness of Israel as the vegan capital of the world. Right. And I mean, that, you know, it's pretty obvious. Oh, we're going to take you around to all these restaurants and serve you all this delicious food and show you all these beautiful sites. And take you to organic farms. Right. And, and isn't Israel beautiful and culturally interesting? And we have all this great food and we're so vegan friendly. Come to Israel. Come to mm -hmm. Israel. Support Israel. Move to Israel if you're Jewish. Like, that's what this is all about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this was very different than just going, you know, oh, hey, I'm going to go on a little trip and, you know, just mm -hmm. on my own. Mm -hmm. Very, very different. And I don't blame them for not knowing that beforehand, except I have to say, so I know for a fact that the Palestinian Animal League, so just to give some background on who they are, so they're an animal rights organization in the Israeli-occupied Palestinian West Bank. Mm -hmm. So these are Palestinians living under Israeli military occupation who have formed this organization to promote animal rights and veganism. They actually invited, I know at least they invited the Buddhist chef. I'm not sure about the other ones, but I know they invited him. And they said, 
why don't you come mm-hmm. over to Palestine if you're going to come, you know, come to the West Bank and learn about what's going on here, learn about the truth of the situation, and also learn about the animal rights movement in Palestine and veganism in Palestine and come and see us while you're here. And the Buddhist chef was like, no, I don't have time for that. Mm. But, you know, he probably didn't have time for that because I'm sure that Israel was controlling, you know, his vibe Israel was controlling their every move. And God knows they never would have allowed that. Yeah. Totally. They would have, vibe Israel would have never been down. And that should have been a sign right there. Hmm, Maybe something is not quite right about the situation. Yeah. I really feel like yeah. Vegan washing has been an issue for a long time. I think it's very harmful to the vegan movement from an outside perspective. People who already think that veganism, you know, has certain issues of mm-hmm. like racism and sexism within the movement to now have this image that is right. so closely associated oh, yeah. with Israel as a progressive vegan nation. And I really feel like this Vibe Israel tour, right. it gave like steroids to vegan washing. It really, I mean, if you're on Instagram at all, like you're, there's a good chance that you follow one of these people. Oh, you know, these no people no. have a collective yeah. reach of over a million people. I mean, I'm sure some of their followers overlap, so that might be a false number, but they have a, they have a combined following that is huge. And that spans people who yeah. look at blogs, people who watch YouTube and people who follow Instagram. You know, it's really, right. they're, they're all over the place. And yeah, Vibe Israel knows what it's doing. Like they clearly picked, right. you know, four white people who seemed incredibly sweet are very like good looking are very like, do not know what's going on. And they preyed on them. And I mm-hmm. I already knew, yeah, vegan birthright is bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the vegan army is bad. Yeah, there's a lot of pro-Israeli advertising in the vegan movement, but this just normalized it so much more. There were so many comments when I was looking through the feed of like, I can't wait to visit Israel. Like, wow, Israel is so amazing. Like, go Tel Aviv. Like, right. 10% of people are vegan. It was... yeah. I don't know. I And I really think it's so important to get this message out. Oh, yeah. Because at least, you know, Vibe, uh, Vegan Vibe, or Vibe Vegan, or whatever it's called, is going to keep on offering these trips. But I hope that creators in the future, like that this yeah. gets a big enough reaction. And I'm... Uh, I'm not that optimistic because I haven't seen that big of a reaction, but that it gets some sort of reaction so that at least bloggers absolutely know that by accepting this sort of trip, this is what they're signing on to and that they should expect some pushback. Right. Because I really think like Caitlin, for example, in her message said she had she had no idea of the situation and she really didn't think that she was gonna get pushback for going there. And I just hope that no one else is in that situation in the future. Yeah, they're so manipulative and sneaky and sinister about the way they go about it. I could completely understand being in her position, not knowing, Mm -hmm. and, oh, my God, somebody's offering me a free trip, you know? Oh, totally take that. And it's veganism, and I believe in veganism so strongly, and, you know, how wonderful, and I'm going to learn about a whole new culture, and, yeah, of course, how would they know? They wouldn't know. You know, it's like that old that age about, you know, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, they wouldn't know. Yeah. I do just want to ask you why it's important for vegans to talk about this issue and why it's fundamental, even if you just care about humans or even, I mean, sorry, even if you just 
care about animals and animal rights, like why it is so important for vegans to condemn the Israeli occupation and recognize it as such and talk about it. Like, what does this have to do with intersectionality and why is it important for us to care? Because actually, quickly, one comment that I've heard a lot lately is that people who denounce Israel, like Israel is so small and it's just so ridiculous Mm -hmm. to pick on them and it's actually being used by people like it's being used as a way to be divisive to get like the left to focus on Israel when Israel is like such a distraction from the real issues that are going on. So how how would you respond to someone who says that within the vegan movement that pointing a finger to the vegans that are going to Israel as a part of brand Israel, you know, you're being divisive by pointing that out because in the end, this is helping the vegan message. Well, I mean, of course, this goes back to the same old thing, you know, we've been going round and round and round in the vegan movement of if you play with racists, (laughs) if you play with Mm -hmm. fascists, if you play with misogynists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you are going to alienate Mm -hmm. a large part of the world. Like humans that, you know, you want to go vegan will Mm -hmm. not want anything to do with your movement because it will be full of toxicity to them. And that's like such a disgusting reason to support human rights that I really don't even Mm -hmm. like making that argument. But, uh, you know, if you're really like that Mm -hmm. nihilistic, that Mm -hmm. you just have no heart for human suffering at all. There's your argument. I mean, you know, what else can I really say about that? But something I wanted to address about the issue of intersectionality. So this is very interesting that you bring up intersectionality because something I wanted to bring up in this interview is that Israelis, uh, Zionists, I should say, um, brand Israel, etc. They have really, mm-hmm. they're trying to figure out how to manipulate intersectionality to their advantage. Just like they try to manipulate everything progressive to their advantage. And it's very interesting because a while back, I started thinking about this issue in terms of intersectionality. And mm-hmm. I was thinking about it in terms of well, we need to take a more pro-intersectional stance towards Palestinian solidarity activism, because actually a lot of the Palestinian solidarity movement doesn't really necessarily take that stance. And I was thinking, you know, we really need to do that and, um, you know, use the lessons of intersectionality to reach more people about Palestine. You know, oh, you believe in feminism? Well, guess what? There are Palestinian women and people that are suffering. So no, you can't be a Zionist and a feminist. Mm-hmm. You know, you believe in LGBTQ rights? Same thing. There are Palestinians that are, you know, that have those multiple identities, et cetera, et cetera. And as it turns out, actually, I was not the only one who had this idea because then I found out that Israel was panicking because they found out that this is what was happening on college campuses, that Palestinian solidarity activists were reaching out Mm -hmm. to other social justice movements and saying, look, this is how our issue intersects with yours. Let's join our struggles. And so Israel basically wants in on this action. (laughs) And, um, So uh, now they are trying to essentially appropriate intersectionality, just like they've done with veganism, just like they've done with environmentalism, just like they've done with LGBTQ rights, just like they've done with 
environmentalism and um, feminism. I mean, just, and as I've said before, even really going all the way back to their founding, just as they've done with the history of Jewish suffering and resistance against anti-Semitism. Right. It really all starts there. But they have made a habit out of appropriating struggles for justice. And so what are they doing now? Oh, they're promoting the Jews as the true indigenous people of that land. And so therefore, if you believe in decolonization and indigenous people's rights, you should support Israel, not Palestine. They actually had the nerve, or should I say chutzpah, which is nerve in Yiddish. <laughs> they actually had the nerve to create a poster. This was on the Columbia University campus, and they created this poster where they showed a First Nations person from what is now, um, you know, U.S.-occupied Turtle Island. They showed that image with the word Judah underneath, and um, Judah was the name of one of the two uh, kingdoms or provinces that you want to call it, the original kingdom of Israel in biblical times. So they actually were, um, again, you know, this association of we are the true indigenous people, but appropriating mm. First Nations person's image for that message. And then, you know, the other thing that they are trying to manipulate, which is so horrifying, is for all these years, from the very beginning of their founding as a nation, they have always shunned and eschewed and basically just distanced themselves from Jews of color uh, because they didn't want that image. They felt that it was going to tarnish their image. Again, they were trying to conform to these European ideals. And there has always been a racial hierarchy, even mm -hmm. amongst Jews in Israel, with Ashkenazi European Jews at the top, Mizrahi Jews and Sephardic Jews, uh, which are the North African and Middle Eastern Jews in the middle, and African Jews at the bottom. And now all of a sudden, because it's hip and trendy to center people of color's voices, now all of a sudden it's, oh, you know, we're going to find Jews of color who support Zionism and center them so that it looks like oh, well, if you don't support Zionism, you will be against them having a safe haven because mm -hmm. we know that they're persecuted in the world. You know, the Ashkenazi European Jew doesn't have that image so much anymore. Uh, so we have to find somebody else to kind of promote in that way. Like a token oppressed person to make Tokenizing you them to the ultimate in support of colonialism. So, um, yeah, intersectionality is a very interesting, important point. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention that I just remembered what I was like trying to hold on to and that I forgot before. So um, you mentioned the comments in response to this vegan vibe tour. And when I heard about this, I went to the Buddhist chef's Facebook page. And of course, I left a comment that was pretty upset about him going on this tour and there were lots of other people that were leaving angry comments but there were a lot of mm -hmm. supportive comments that were very creepily worded exactly the same 
in commenter after commenter after commenter after commenter. And it was something to the effect of enjoy. And you know, Israel is not just the vegan, the global center of veganism. We also have many other cuisines for your dining pleasure or something like that. Oh, wow. So it was like a bot? Yes. And it was really creepy as well because um, I guess whoever had created the original statement probably wasn't a native English speaker because they put a, the word for in kind of like an unusual place that it wouldn't normally be. And every single one of them wow. repeated that same mistake, Ugh. that same word in that same position over and over and over. Now, it came out a couple of years ago. USA Today covered it, and I know some other mainstream media outlets covered it. Obviously, they didn't you know, make it front page news, but there has been some mainstream media coverage that Israel, the government, is actually hiring mm-hmm. people to post comments on social media to make Israel look good. Mm. And it was a very obvious, and I was not the only one who noticed it. Lots of people were saying it, that that's what was going on in this case. Yeah, I've heard that there's so many, they have so many resources to like write automatic comments on basically anywhere that the word Israel is mentioned. Right. Yeah, that's that's scary. And so the Buddhist chef, you don't think he did anything about that? No, in fact, he was deleting the comments that were in support of Palestine that were criticizing him. Oh, interesting. I know that Caitlin didn't de- didn't delete any comments, or at least she made a point of saying that. Right. Um, I really feel like from everything I've seen from her, it's like, you know, I don't think there was any ill intent, but I... No, I don't uh, either. What would be amazing is if she realized what was going on and then spoke out against Vibe Israel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit about what's going on there right now, just kind of to seal up the interview. Um, and I realize we maybe should have done this in the beginning, but I really think a lot of people aren't aware of the extent to which it's important to talk about it and the extent of like the absolute horror that is going on right now and for the past, you know, decades. Yeah. Yeah. I really didn't talk about it. And I'm so glad you brought that up because there's so much to cover and I really do need to talk about that. So basically, first of all, as I mentioned before, in addition to everything that they're doing in the West Bank, uh, so that's where the apartheid settlements are. And of course, they are uh, militarily occupied. And that's where Hebron was that I spoke about before. Mm -hmm. But in addition to everything they're doing there, of course, um, in Gaza, they are completely blocking Gaza off to the outside world, Gazans cannot get in and out at all without Israeli permission. In fact, my friend, his father needs surgery for cancer, for colon cancer, and they were going to take the father to Jerusalem to have the surgery, and the Israelis said, no, you can't go. So now they are stuck doing the surgery in Gaza because they can't get out of there. So just in the past week, I got messages from my friends in Gaza saying that they were, um, that Israel was bombing them again. This happens just like intermittently on an ongoing basis. Gazans have been living there. You know, again, the Israelis block them from getting food. They block them from getting medicine. Um, Another thing, they still haven't recovered from the Israeli bombing of 2014. They basically demolished practically everything standing in Gaza and then they blocked them from importing building materials so that they could rebuild their buildings. So it's like a big pile of rubble still. 
And the other thing is that they bombed their one and only nuclear power plant and they have had no. Mm -hmm. So this has been since 2014. They've had limited electricity that the Israelis were rationing it up until the past year. And then they cut their electricity rations to four hours a day. This has been so horrific that Gaza, which of course, it's a desert. So they have very mm -hmm. extreme temperatures, very cold in the winter, very hot in the summer. You have babies dying from exposure to the temperatures. And I have to say that, you know, as I said, I've been a really serious activist for Palestine for the last 10 years, and I have never seen the situation like it is now. Never. I mean, really? Oh, yeah. No. Like, I have all these friends in Gaza that I have known for years, and normally they'll message me and they'll be like, you know, oh, hello, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. And in the last year or so, it's just been like, we're desperate. We're starving. Mm. We have no money for anything. Please, please send us help. This is not like them. This is shocking what's going on there now. And, and you know, it just makes it like such an obscenity that you look at that situation and then you look at a food tour of Israel. Mm -hmm. Like people are literally starving just a few miles away in Gaza. The whole Israel and Palestine combined is like the size of New Jersey. So this is all just happening a couple of miles away. People are literally starving. Israel is intentionally imprisoning them and starving them. And then it's like, oh, vibe Israel, you know, vegan vibes. Mm -hmm. And let's like show all this gorgeous food that we're going to gorge ourselves on. And it's just so sick and twisted and disturbing. Yeah. Anyway, the uh, this past weekend was a Palestinian holiday called Land Day, which is of course, very significant in Palestine because it is about their land and the fact that it's been stolen from them. And so they had these massive protests. Protesters were completely unarmed and they were protesting on the border between Gaza and Israel. And the Israeli military came out and they opened fire on them. And they killed 17 protesters and they injured over a thousand. I heard counts of anywhere from a thousand to sixteen hundred. Wow. People injured. Oh my god. It was so bad that my friend in Gaza is diabetic and he didn't go to the protest because his health is not good enough, but he is type one diabetic and he was having high blood sugar and he needed to go to the hospital. And then when he got there, he was turned away because they were like, we have so many injured people from these protests that we can't even see you. God. So that's what's going on there now. And is this, is this getting a lot of attention in the U.S.? I was just about to bring that up. And I'm like, I'm pretending we did not talk about this two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> Right, because of course in the U.S. it's like, oh, there were clashes between Palestinians and Israelis. Clashes. On the border mm -hmm. between Gaza and Israel. But I have to say the Washington Post actually ran an article just today that was like mm. very condemnatory of Israel. And it's like, we need to, this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. We can't keep supporting them like this. We need to really get 
up yeah. on them. And I was like, well, that's a Washington Post. That's pretty good that they published that. How is the New York Times coverage of all of this these days? Because there was a moment where it was real bad. Yeah, the New York Times has always been very, very heavily Zionist influenced. But even the New York Times, there are things that come out in the New York Times. But you, again, you have to kind of like catch them because they're not the stories that they promote. It's like, oh, one little article in the back, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you don't catch it, it's gone. Then they don't speak about it again. But, like, the New York Times, for example, had an article on pinkwashing. Oh, okay. So they do talk about this stuff. They just kind of underplay it. So you don't really – if you're not really paying attention, you're going to miss it. Mm -hmm. Oh, could you talk about the vegan products that people who – want to support BDS should avoid buying? Yes. So um, thank you so much for asking about that. So yeah, very important. First of all, we know how much vegans love hummus. I mean, I am guilty of that myself, I must say. <laughs> I mean, I am just like, hummus is like a daily staple. <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a day without hummus is not a good day in the marine household. Right, exactly. It's like a day without hummus for a vegan is like, I don't know. It's, a day it's like pretty devastating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so two very important hummus brands to not support, Sabra and Tribe. Sabra is actually funding the Hebron settlements that I talked about earlier, the ones where Palestinian children can't walk by without Israeli military accompaniment because the settlers will come out and physically assault them. That's what Sabra is funding. So if you are buying Sabra, you are supporting them, supporting that. So definitely don't buy Sabra. And Tribe is supporting the Israeli military Golani Brigade. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, you don't want to be supporting either of those. They're really, really bad. It's much worse than even just supporting an Israeli brand because they're actually funding key aspects of the occupation. And yet saying, don't support Israeli apartheid, boycott Sabra and Tribe. So if you just think about it that way, it's very easy to remember mm -hmm. those two brands. Another thing, of course, medjool dates we love, right, um, in the vegan community, for sweetening things. I see medjool dates and like all these recipes. Yeah, if you buy the ones, now they have medjool dates from like other parts of the world. They like, do. They have some from like California, I think. And they have some from, oh no, Tunisia is another kind of date. Is another one. Oh yeah, right. 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 Kind of date. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's fine to buy medjool dates, just make sure of where they come from. So um, you want to look and see if they say Israel, obviously avoid it. Even if they don't say Israel, there's a barcode that starts with 729. Mm -hmm. That's an indication that it was made in Israel. The main, especially what you want to avoid is products that were not just made in Israel, but actually made in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, because that means they're directly stealing those resources. Uh, they're exploiting Palestinian labor. It's very often the settlements, you know, are making the products. They're the worst. Mm -hmm. So you want to be careful about that. Soda Stream is another one. Soda Stream has a factory in the Israeli occupied Palestinian West Bank. Another one is Ahava Beauty Products. Yes. That's a really big one as well. And I know a lot of these beauty products are like, oh, we're vegan and we're cruelty mm, free, haha. <laughs> you know, all this crap. Say Yes to Carrots is another Israeli brand. 
Do you have any updates on Ben and Jerry's? Because I know they were... Oh, yes. And oh my God, thank you for reminding me. Ben and Jerry's is a huge one. Is it really? Because I know that they had like one shop in, I think, the West Bank. But then I was I didn't know if that was still relevant. And I was maybe spreading fake news by saying that they were still there. I Yeah. No, no. Ben and Jerry's. Yeah. Ben okay. and Jerry's is definitely selling to the settlements. Mm in the West Bank. So yes, there is an official boycott specifically against Ben and Jerry's, which of course, you know, is vegan ice cream. So Right. And plus, um, the vegan warrior princesses attack did a The chocolate, yeah. Right, right. They did a petition to try and get Ben and Jerry's to disclose where they were obtaining their chocolate to put on the Food Empowerment Project's website of brands that source their chocolate ethically if this was the case and they never responded or they responded with something I forget. yeah no I think they did respond but basically their response was um, inadequate and signaled that they most probably did source their chocolate from West Africa which sources 80% of its cacao from child slave labor right so double reason not to support Ben and Jerry's even if they do have vegan ice cream yes I know and I know that's very disappointing <laughs> nobody wants to hear that but the thing is like France doesn't have any of these products so a part of me is like well I really wish I could try Ben and Jerry's ice cream, but right. I don't for all these reasons. And I right. can't because I live here. So. Right. <laughs> Do they have any vegan ice cream in France? Does that even Is that even a thing there? <sighs> yeah, I mean, there's a store in Paris called Un Monde Vegan, a vegan world, and they have some ice cream uh-huh. there. I think a lot of it is sorbet. Um, I think that, yeah, I think they do, but it's like very niche and you have to travel to this like one store in Paris to get it, so... It's definitely not right. something that you can get in the supermarket yet. Hopefully soon. Yeah. Yeah, I knew Paris was not the most vegan-friendly place. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely way more vegan-friendly than it was even two or one year ago, which, uh-huh. you know, is great and also makes me raise an eyebrow because obviously our food mm. our food distribution is being more and more industrialized and um, – you know, sourced from literally all around the world. A few years ago, you still, there's so many different products that you couldn't get here. And it was hard to obtain vegetables that were out of season. And that's just completely changed, you know, so. Wow. A part of me is, yeah, it's good that there are more and more vegan products in supermarkets. But a part of me is also, especially when it's not French brands, you know, when it's very clearly yeah. like being imported from God knows where. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. How about China? Because listeners, Laura lives in China, which is pretty cool. Oh, yes. <laughs> Actually, there's an amazing vegan movement that is really springing up in China and it's been getting a lot of news coverage lately. Wow, um, cool. Because China, the, so the Chinese government has committed to actually reduce meat consumption by 50% by the year 2030. What? How is that not something vegans know? Because they don't like China. <laughs> uh, well, white Western vegans, I should say. Well, well, I feel like China's always pointed out, singled out with India as like the people who are going to be 100% responsible of our meat production in the coming years. 
Yeah, which is BS. Really? That is not true. So, oh my God. So this is really exciting news. So Forbes magazine, of all things, uh, came out with an article this past week where they were saying that some extensive research has been done on populations all around the world, uh, asking them about their meat consumption habits. And 70% of the global population said that they were either reducing or eliminating their meat consumption. Okay, I need to get you on the show to talk about this again, because even I had no idea. Yeah, I was astounded when I heard that. Wow. I was like, this is the most exciting thing that I've ever heard. (laughs) Right, because also I covered that or I, I heard and spoke about it in a video that McDonald's is opening one restaurant every single day for the next four years in China, in rural China. And, you know, sort of said, okay, well, our meat consumption at home may be decreasing, supposedly, but all of these multinational corporations are really preying on less developed areas to exponentially increase their, their meat distribution. Right. But that's not actually what's happening in China. What's happening in China is that basically there was a big sort of trend with, it was kind of like the quote unquote honeymoon period with American fast food. And so it seemed like that was just going up and up and up and up and up. And for a while it was. I mean, you know, China was just obsessed with Mm -hmm. McDonald's and KFC. It's a a status symbol. Right. But actually, it turned out that, you know, basically it was just a trend and not a long-term change. Because what's happened is that they've realized, number one, that it's unhealthy. And, you know, China has that very ancient influence of Chinese medicine. That's not going away anytime soon. And... They do look at health from a much more holistic perspective than Westerners. So when they realized that it was unhealthy and then also the environmental aspects to it, they it, it fell out of fashion. And, you know, the funny thing, of course, is that with veganism becoming this sort of like big trend in the West now, it's kind of like, oh, we'll jump on that trend as well. Great. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a very ancient vegan influence in China because of Buddhism. Um, actually... Chinese Buddhism goes, uh, Chinese veganism, um, you know, goes all the way back through Buddhism. And it's very interesting because if you go to like the Buddhist temples, very often there will be a vegan shop nearby and vegan restaurants nearby. And you can get all kinds of vegan, you know, like plant-based meat substitutes and all this sort of stuff. So that's really where the West got its ideas from to make Mm -hmm. those things was from China and from other countries that are Buddhist in East mm-hmm. Asia. So that is, it's a very ancient influence and it would only make sense. Plus the other issue, of course, is that they are mm-hmm. mostly lactose intolerant. So dairy's mm-hmm. never been a part of the diet. So it makes sense that they would go. And also the Chinese government, say what you will, <laughs> the Chinese government in other respects, but they are really taking the climate issue very, very seriously. Uh, they have committed to reducing meat consumption by 50% by 2030. They have committed to 
uh, changing over to renewable energy sources. They, have, I think, they're investing three hundred billion dollars mm-hmm. in clean renewable energy, solar, wind, etc. Wow. Even ocean. They're trying to harness the power of ocean movements for energy. They are building some kind of. I remember hearing that they were building some kind of like huge. I have to look this one up, but it was some kind of like huge food forest or something. They're really investing a lot of money into combating climate change in a way that the West is not, and certainly the U.S. is not. So, well, I was going to say, is that why Donald Trump thinks it's a Chinese hoax? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Interesting. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm very surprised to hear and learn about that, and very, very happy about it yeah yeah so you know don't believe the doomsayers i mean there's this whole thing oh well you know there's no way that we can possibly have a, you know we're going to go to a vegan world because it's rising and rising in india and china now india is another story i did look into india and it does seem like meat consumption is rising there mm-hmm. so that's another issue but china which of course is almost a third of the world's population in one country very different story mm-hmm mm-hmm well, thank you so much, Laura, for recording this episode with me. And I know that Maxi is going to be so, so excited as well when I edit this episode and send it to her um, because she's also very passionate about this issue. And we've talked many times about how we want to keep raising it on our platform um, and that it's an issue that doesn't get a lot of attention in yeah leftist circles or in vegan circles. I mean, certainly some leftists do talk about it. I know that Mexi notably is a huge fan of um, the podcast Media Roots. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of it? I have heard of them, yeah. With Abby Martin and Robbie Martin. And they talk extensively about the, the huge reach that that um that the US has in Israel and vice yeah. versa and notably the huge reach of like the APEC foreign interest lobby for Israel right. and um in the United States and so I yeah I know that she's always talking about that a lot as well. Yeah. Um but yeah so I unfortunately have to go to work. So we need to wrap <laughs> we need to wrap up this discussion, but I'm sure that um our listeners well, well, some of our listeners will really enjoy this episode. Some of our listeners are going to be pissed because that is what this issue does. Yes, <laughs> but, but some of them will be bots, so who cares? Some of them exactly. will be angry government to write angry comments, so whatever. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but thank you for, thanks everyone for listening and we'll put, um, down in the show notes also all the places where you can reach Laura, uh, notably through Facebook. Something else I just want to mention is that the Palestinian Animal League is having the first pro-intersectional vegan conference in Palestine next month. Are you going to that? I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. They invited me. To oh my god, them. I want to go so badly. Do you? We should talk about this after. <laughs> but, okay, um, yeah, we should legit talk about this because yes. it could be amazing. Yes. And I remember talking about this with you like six months ago, being like, we totally need to go, and now it's coming up. And- I know. I know. So we'll have a conversation about it. But, but yes, so stay tuned because there will be more information coming out about that, and it I'm sure going to be really incredible. They're actually looking at this issue from a decolonial context, looking at the land, looking at the ecology and the animal issue 
in that context of Israeli colonialism and then, of course, the human rights issue as well. That sounds amazing. I would learn so much. Yes. I would learn so much. And also, how amazing would it be to get Vegans with a Platform to come and try to counter the vibe vegan no bullshit kidding. that just happened? Exactly. We could have our, you know, vegan anti-Israel vibe. <laughs> I know. Well, they do have... Israel, so vegan Israel gives us a bad vibe to us. Oh, our, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they do have literally 30 times the amount of subscribers that I have, but uh, I'm still I'm still down to do whatever I can. You have you have a following. And, you know, actually, um, there is a Birthright Unplugged tour. What is that? Which is that sort of counterpart to the Birthright tour. So, That's yeah. That's a hilarious name, Birthright Unplugged. <laughs> yeah, Birthright Unplugged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. And I will see you in two weeks with Mexi. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. She's- She's